short time ago. Yeah, we don't have time no. for that. Welcome back to the Cold War Show, episode one four zero. Hello, Cameron. To... Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Dove. Are you back? <laughs> yes, I am. For this episode, we're all going to speak like Dove Levin. You know. Would you like some brisket? No, actually, I don't know. I, I just push the edge of my knowledge of all that is Jewish. So go ahead. <laughs> well, we are uh, continuing to talk about Israel yeah. on this and for the next few episodes, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Strap yourself in. Kids, Wall wall Jew. We're, uh, Was that wrong? <laughs> Was that wrong? <laughs> well, if the walls, they're a gas chamber, yes, uh, then it is wrong. <laughs> Um, outside of that, I think it's fine. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, we're going to continue to talk about the creation of Israel. We're getting into the weeds a little bit. Uh, it's, yeah. it's getting a little bit Yalta uh, <coughs> here, but well, I yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, I, I'm personally really uh, fascinated by this. Race. Oh yes, and as as you know, for many 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 years, oh yeah, it's been something that I've wanted to go deep uh into right and um deep like vegas and uh i (laughs) you're welcome just the level of um betrayal yes layers by by the british and the other colonial powers mostly france but but mostly the british right vis-a-vis the arabs uh in this period just after world war one is astounding, and and the level of the the more I peel away the layers of the onion here, the just the level of not surprising, I guess, um, racism <laughs> by the British yes. authorities at the time. Well, they're the masters against both the right the, against the Jews and the Arabs. That's where I learned. Uh, right, is right. astounding, and and the and you know uh, we we always say follow the money. Uh, Qui bono, and and when you peel away the layers of this, and you realise that it really uh, ha- it was mostly a an economic and uh, political decision here regarding Britain's interests, right? Series not of so much anything yeah. to do with no. Uh, no. you know the the, the no, protection no. of the Jews. Or do I think that right was a thing. happy? Yeah, I think that was a happy coincidence yeah. that the Jews got a place out of it. Anyway, let's drill into it. So we talked a little bit in the last time about the Balfour Declaration that uh, came out on November 2nd, 1917. It took the form of a letter Mm -hmm. from the Foreign Secretary, Mr. Arthur Balfour, to, it was addressed to Lord Lionel Walter Rothschild, Mm -hmm. a British banker and zoologist. Oh, nice. He uh, loved his zoology. Well, uh, we all have and he was there. Yeah. He, he, he headed up Britain's Zionist Federation. And here's basically the, the key wording of it. It said, I have much pleasure. <coughs> do this as Dove Levin. <laughs> I have much pleasure <laughs> in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government. I'm wet. <laughs> the following declaration of sympathy. I can't do that. I lose my voice if I do that. Please don't. I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment mm-hmm. in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities Mm -hmm. in Palestine Mm -hmm. or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Oh, well, that's easy. It just took care of everything. 
Except that it neglected to mention uh, the political rights right. of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. Right. Or the human rights. Uh, the civil rights, the religious rights, yes, but what about their other human rights? And uh, the, the right to self-determination? Eh. Yeah. yeah, or the right to party, borders, timeline. I mean, this is a vague... This this is a big letter that promises everything and yet nothing because it's devil in the there. details exactly as exactly as we say. Yes. So I want to talk uh, a bit about the Rothschilds now. The Rothschilds, typically associated with a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, right? The go-to, and, um, yeah. There's a, there's a couple of really good books on the Rothschilds written by a British, I think he's British, historian uh, Neil Ferguson, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend. And he, he takes, it's a two-book series, and, he, and he, he, he takes his time to sort of unpick oh, yes. a lot of the conspiracy theories and try to get into the, the evidence of what they did or didn't do in these situations. But... Um, you know, the Rothschilds, they're, they're basically the Medici right. of the 18th, 19th, <laughs> and 20th centuries. Oh, yes. Um, where did it all start, right? Take us yeah. back. Well, uh, ironically, just for the fun of it, the, the very first person to have that family name was um, Isaac Rothschild, who was born in 1577. But that's not the particular branch, as far as I can tell, that we are going to speak of. The first one was... Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who was a German Jewish banker born in a Jewish ghetto in Frankfurt on Main in the Holy Roman Empire, 1744. He is the one who will go on to found the Rothschild banking dynasty, I think is how you're supposed to say it. He's the man, Mm. Mayor Amschel. Yeah. And the thing about Meyer is that he was a court, court Jew. Right. Or a court factor. Uh, court Jews were very important. You had to have a court Jew in your court, your royal court. Right. Um, Steady apparently count. it was... <laughs> that's what it was called. No, I know. That's the term. I know. Court Jew. Get your court Jew. <laughs> right. Um, court Jew was a Jewish banker who lent money uh, to European, mostly German, royalty and nobility. Right. And they got special privileges in some cases for doing that, including noble status. And they were you needed to have your court due because of the usury prohibitions. And, and thank you to Martin Darlington for uh, educating me on how to pronounce usury, usury. via email after we okay. after I mispronounced it in our uh, Medici episodes huh. of the Renaissance. Thank you, Martin. Um, if, yeah, always. If, if there's ever the tiniest mistake in any of their shows, <laughs> could you like <laughs> recently in one of the, I can't remember which show it was one of the shows. I think it was. I think it was. Uh, yeah, 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 Caligula. Right. And we were talking about the negative uh, propaganda regarding Caligula, and I said it kind of reminded me of Shakespeare's writing of Richard III, and he was writing it because you know he was. He needed to suck up to the Victorians. Right. I meant Elizabethans. Right. Uh, I said Victorians. And didn't Martin, have, you know, I was, let just, you know. I was just riffing. Right. Didn't have notes. Right. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, all your British royalty are all the same, same to me. The same. They're all a bunch of inbred. Prince Andrew, Germans. Uh, inbred fucking, right. yeah. you know, pedophiles. Um, <laughs> Martin took me to task on that because right. he's a proud royalist. Is he? Uh, no, I don't think so, no. Okay. Anyway, check just, out Martin Darlington's podcast. What's yes. it called? History by Hollywood? Check yes. that out. And you, uh, just for a second, close your eyes and imagine what it would be like to be to be married to someone who corrects every mistake. I mean, I know I oh, am because I'm a German. I don't have to. I don't have to imagine it. <laughs> okay, never mind. Scratch that then. So she's helped you be become the person that you are. Scott Berbikachov. Right. Sent me a t- nice text yesterday on Messenger. He said, you know, you're like the Doc Dos Ecky guy. You're the most interesting man <laughs> in the world. I said, yeah, you should try telling my wife that. <laughs> She'd go, really? Him? Yeah. 
And she stopped rolling her fucking eyes at, <laughs> across the dinner table when I go, did you know that? And she's like, oh, here we go again. Oh, just eat and chew and pretend like you're listening. Yeah. Yeah. She's think, thinking about just eat and chew and nod and think about true crime podcasts. Um, or really killing this son of a bitch across the table. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. You yeah, know, she's to come do- up with some ideas. For you the know, she's doing podcast. research when she listens yeah. to those. Okay. Just yeah, want yeah, to make yeah, sure yeah. you knew. All right. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, uh, you caught Jew. So usury, uh, getting back to that. There were prohibitions against usury. Right. Uh, against Christians at various stages, as mm-hmm. we've talked about in the, the Renaissance show, uh, popes would issue papal bulls banning usury. The Medici got around it by uh, spending a lot of money on basically indulgences, you know, right. paying for churches to be uh, built or, well, do or it. restored and paying for artworks, uh, worshipping uh, Jesus. <clears throat> And they hoped, the Medici hoped that, because they were Christians, that that would, that would sort of buy them, uh, get uh, them out of the fact that absolution. they were bankers. Right. Yeah, but yeah. In, other, in other parts of Europe, particularly later on, it was frowned upon even more. And so you had to have your court Jew who could uh, ah, uh, they loan can you do money. It. Because right. for some reason, whilst you know, they're basically the same God, right. <clears throat> they both worship Yahweh, the God of the Jews, right. uh, he, he, I guess it must, it's probably a circumcision thing. You know, when God, God says, okay, if, Ooh, if you don't, if, if you I got cut it. off the end of your knob, you can loan int- money out at interest. What? If, if you have your tip, you will be acquitted. No, there was almost a rhyme there. Shit. Anyway. It will, okay. It will, if you, if you don't have your, if, if you have your tip, Right. The crime of usury will fit. <laughs> so you had to have that because that's their way of getting around the, the rules because yeah. everybody does it to make money. That's just the way business goes. Yeah. It was, okay. the, the, you know, and when you went into a financial services <clears throat> establishment back in those days and you were, you were trying to get a loan. Yeah. Uh, they would say, uh, okay, uh, Mr. Harris, you'd like to loan a million dollars to uh, hire a hitman to kill your wife. Right. Uh, could you undo your flight, please, and flop <laughs> out your penis on the table? And if you flopped it out and it was what? uncircumcised, they go, I'm sorry, Mr. Harris. We can't, uh, um, come, yeah. come back with the uh, foreskin removed. Detipped. And we might be able to loan you some money. Unfortunately, right. we can't loan you money because you're a Christian. That's why... I always walked into a bank and I would stand in the middle of the room and just kind of go, hello, hello, hello. And I'd wait for the one person to go, hello. And that's who I knew I wanted to deal with. Because the Jews would loan you money that's and not right. worry about it. They don't care. Yeah, yeah. It's business. Anyway. Was that racist? Anyway. Why do you sound like, why do you sound like Jerry Lewis when you're doing your loud <laughs> Jew impersonation? That's the best I can do. I'll work on it. I'll put this on mute and I'll work hello! on it. Hello! <laughs> Oy <laughs> I'll work on it. <laughs> anyway, we're supposed to be working. I was showing uh, Fox a compilation of Jerry Lewis clips recently. Right. Don't show him Three Stooges because he'll start smacking people. But yeah. anyway, I'm glad he... Did he like Jerry Lewis? Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, he, he basically is uh, the embodiment of Jerry Lewis. Just living with Fox is like living <laughs> with Jerry <laughs> That's Lewis. That's a good point. It's just... That's a good point. You ask him to do something and he just pulls a stupid face <laughs> out of you. And true. You know, there's That's nothing so you can do about it. It's, it's, it's coming. It's funny. It's coming yeah. and it's cute. Anyway, yes. um, now there were risks uh, uh, with being a court Jew. Uh, like we saw in the days of the, the Medici, the risks of being a Vatican banker. If if the monarch you are financing as the court Jew lost his life, you were pretty much screwed. Yeah. You might end up dead, or at the very least, the incoming monarch will just nullify the debts to you. Sorry. No, not paying that. Fuck you, Jew. Uh, and you could be end up broke. Right. So, and, and this was a common thing with bankers yeah. going right back. We saw this doing the Medici shows on the Renaissance. In the 14th century, 13th and 14th century, a lot of the big banking houses in mm-hmm. Florence 
the most powerful banking houses before the Medici established themselves, would go broke uh, fairly regularly by lending money to this king right. or that king or this pope or that pope. And then right. either that king or that pope would go, you know what, change my mind, <laughs> don't want to pay it back, fuck not you, the, what are you going to do about not it? Not the mood. Uh, well, let me introduce you to my uh, mercenary <laughs> army that I paid for with the money that you lent me. They're on your doorstep. Uh, yeah. 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 Or, better loan me some more, but I, and by loan I mean give. Um, <laughs> Donate. Or that they would lose a battle, and because uh, usually these guys were financing wars, and yeah. if your guy lost the war, then you were, you were fucked. So right. it's very risky. Anyway, so in, late in the 18th century, some of these Jewish bankers decided to break away from being tied to just one monarch and set themselves up as free banking houses. Ooh. They were just, we can, we'll work with anyone. We'll deal with right. anyone. Doesn't we don't matter. care. Yeah. And during the 19th century, the Rothschild family possessed the largest private fortune in the world as Ooh. well as... It is usually estimated the largest private fortune in modern world history. Forget yeah. your Warren Buffett, forget your Bill Gates, forget yeah. your uh, Bezos. Jeff Bezos, yeah. forget your uh, uh, Bloomberg. Uh, you know, these guys uh, just could have eaten them all for lunch. Right. Jeez. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the Rothschild, it just grows and grows and grows with the sons. They marry into other wealthy families. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's a literally its own empire that, for the most part, you don't hear about because that's what they want. They just want to keep on making money and keep their heads down so they don't get involved in all the politics. But that's going to happen anyway. Well, back then they got very involved in the politics. These right. days, they're they still around. It. Yeah. But they keep it on the DL these <laughs> days. But back in those days, uh, everyone yeah, they up knew in it. They were. Yeah. Yeah, so it spread um, right across Europe and it spread to the UK in 1798 under Nathan Meyer Rothschild, or Natty, as he was known. Mm. He profited hugely uh, by funding Britain's wars against Napoleon. Right. From 1813 to 1815, so the sort of post-Elba period, he pretty much single-handedly financed the war efforts of Britain and their allies against Napoleon. He had actually, when Napoleon had gone into exile in Elba uh, after his first defeat, the uh, Rothschilds thought it was going to be a great time to make money and they were loaning loaning money to every man and his dog across Europe right. uh, for this new era of peace. But then Napoleon came back. Mm. Oh, mm. Fuck. <laughs> so they started, but but they saw it as a, a huge opportunity. Right. They, they lent money to all of these um, foreign monarchs to fight a war with Napoleon, which they hoped would last for 10 years because that's a great way to make money. Right. War to, gotcha. you know, you, for the military. But it was over pretty quickly. Napoleon was defeated a lot faster than they had anticipated, which was disappointing. But they did make huge profits after the Battle of Waterloo. Now, I remember back when I was doing the Napoleon show and I mentioned the rumours around this at the time. Rumours had been around for centuries. And I got a ton of hate mail calling right. me an anti-Semite just because I talked about these rumours. And I was... Like, fuck you guys. Like, I didn't say it happened. I'm not anti yeah. I'm just saying these are, these are the rumours that were going around at the time. Right. Uh, you know, fuck you and uh, the horse you rode in. And, but right. uh, according to Noel Ferguson, the rumours are not true. And I'll explain. So the old story has always been that they used their network of agents, like banking agents. Right across Europe, to know about the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo a day before London right. did. Mm -hmm. And that, according to Neil or Niall Ferguson, is apparently true. Like the Medici, you know, we, we've talked about this yeah. on the Renaissance show, the Medici had bank branches everywhere. They knew everything. And yeah. they knew everything, right? Yeah, not totally. not only did they use those bank branches branches to loan money, they they used them as an intelligence gathering network. Absolutely. These people 
pay they use the the Medici fortune to pay this is basically like forerunner of the CIA mm-hmm. they were paying informers <laughs> you, you set up a branch in a city right that's how that's how America uses USAID today you, you set up a branch in a city and then you just spread the money around say hey if you hear anything uh, yeah, come and bring it to me first yeah. right? bring it to me first I'll make it worth some, your while yeah some yeah. coin in it for you sure. uh, so the the Rothschilds did that as well now uh, they so, but apparently they the old story the old rumor was that they heard about the defeat and they used that knowledge secretly to arbitrage the financial markets before everyone else knew about oh, the uh, defeat. Right, but apparently that's not true, according to Ferguson, and he said that story might have been started by Balzac. Um, I've right. had a lot. Of, I got a lot of trouble with my ball sack over the years, but uh, rash. You know, this anyway. one, yeah. <laughs> what mash? <laughs> rash, not a mash. You oh, never, a rash. Never mash the ball sack. No. Ray, Ray told me off air that he knows how to do a tracheotomy, right? Because he saw it on mash several and, several times. Thank you. Yeah, I can yeah. do it. Pen knife. Yeah, a, a straw or a pen. I'm good. Mm. Yeah, but only if it's hot. Assisting you. Right. And you got to hold still. That's, that's the key. I mean, I don't know if I need to say that, but that's the key. Hot lips. I need to practice my tracheotomy on you. Uh, Now it's going to involve me uh, uh, laying on top of your breasts. Right. Uh, It's the only way to get to the throat. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So uh, they, they apparently told the British government, that about the news uh, uh, of right. Napoleon's defeat and its spread. But what they did do, again, according to Ferguson, what Natty Rothschild did do was buy up all of the government bonds that he could because he assumed that there would be peace, that the peace would mean the economy would improve, mm-hmm. and that these, uh, well, the, the the British monarchy would stop borrowing so much money from him. Interest rates would go down on bonds because right. they wouldn't have to keep paying the money. You know, wouldn't have to pay it back to him. So uh, he bought all of the bonds that he could and sat on them for two years until the economy uh, uh, recovered, and then mm-hmm. he sold them at a forty percent profit. Whoa. He also financed the newly restored Bourbon government in France. Mm, uh, make so, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, the Rothschilds financed the British purchase of the Suez Canal from Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, which plays a big role in the creation of uh, Israel. He financed Cecil Rhodes's adventures in South Africa and set up the Rhodes Scholarship Scheme at Oxford University after his death. They financed De Beers Diamonds. They right. financed Rio Tinto. Woo! They financed the Japanese during the Russo-Japanese mm-hmm. War. That's just the highlights. I mean, the Rothschilds <laughs> were everywhere, funding everything on yeah. all sides and uh, getting a taste. Exactly. Uh, of everything in the process. By the end of the 19th century, mm-hmm. the family apparently owned or had built over 41 palaces. Ooh, I'm still working on my first. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the Palazzo Jaricio. <laughs> yeah. It's it's there mm. in my mind. I can see it. I can just I just need mm. someone to work on. Will you do the dome for me? That's the Cameron Dome right there that you've heard so much about. That would yeah, be, the cool. Dome. be cool. Be cool. You uh you need the palace so you don't hear Heather and D'Angelo. You can put them over in the, the <laughs> you know, east wing. I wasn't gonna. You can bring it Sleep up. in the west wing. Right. Uh, well, I'll slip know, it in over ha- there. He's slipping in over there. We're all happy. Mm. You don't have to bring it up because he brings it up, gets it up, brings it up. The Niles Weekly Register in Baltimore had the following to say about the Rothschilds in 1836. Mm -hmm. The Rothschilds are the wonders of modern banking. We see the descendants of Judah, after a persecution of 2,000 years, peering above kings, rising higher than emperors and holding Mm. a whole continent in the hollow of their hands. The Rothschilds govern a Christian world. 
Not a cabinet moves without their advice. They stretch their hand with equal ease from Petersburg to Vienna, from Vienna to Paris, from Paris to London, from London to Washington. Baron Rothschild, the head of the house, is the true king of Judah, the prince of the captivity, the Messiah so long looked for by this extraordinary people. Mm -hmm. He holds the keys of peace or war, blessing or cursing. They are the brokers and counsellors of the kings of Europe and of the Republican chiefs of America. What more can they desire? Wow. And I think it's, it's, it's important to recognise that you know, whilst anti-Semitism had been around forever, and we've talked about mm-hmm. some of the ancient causes of anti-Semitism, at this point, one of the the things that the Rothschilds did engender was anti-Semitic uh, sentiment, rumours, and fact involved in this, because right. you did have Jews that were financing wars, that were destroying people, destroying populations, and they were yes. profiting from war. Yeah. Now, of course, the fact that, uh, you know, a, a family that happened to be Jewish are doing that doesn't mean all Jews are bad, right. all right. Jews are corrupt, all Jews are evil, which is anti-Semitism. You can criticise the Rothschilds, Mm-hmm. Without it being anti-Semitic, you can criticize the uh, g- the governments of Israel uh, and the po- the, the p- political um, uh, position of, of Israel with the treatment of the Palestinians. Without being anti-Semitic, you you you, sh- you are, should be allowed and are allowed in my book. Although yeah. a lot of people will tell you differently, uh, you, we should be free to criticize individual. Uh, Jewish people or Jewish mm-hmm. governments or Jewish groups, uh, associations, and, and yeah. you know, as uh, you should be free to like, but you know, it's like every time I criticize uh, anything America's ever done in terms of geopolitics, people like Markham will call me anti American. Yeah. Uh, you criticize Jews and people will call you anti Semitic. It's just a way to shut down uh, criticism, is all exactly. it is. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a childish, lame ass way. It's sort of fascinating. Debate on um, uh, Facebook recently, or not on my thread, somebody else's page. A friend of mine, he was uh, criticizing something that Israel had done uh, with regards to the Palestinians, and uh, this, Amer- this American guy just just basically started calling him an anti anti Semitic anti Semitic. And every everything my friend said, and I know this guy well, he's definitely not anti Semitic. Right. Everything he said, this other guy's got, yep, that's classic anti Semitism right there. And it doesn't matter. And my friend was being very, very um, balanced, very calm, mm-hmm. very, uh, you know, asking legitimate questions, uh, trying to, you know, do a very good uh, Socratic method right. of uh, investigation. This guy was like, yep. That's a class. That's classic anti-Semitism right there. As soon as you say that, that's anti-Semitic. Yeah. Anyway, fascinating the way that they operate. The people who just try and shut down any sort of conversation just by using the magic words, the magic <laughs> wand of anti-Semitism. Right. But the the Rothschilds were hated uh, around the world during the nineteenth century, in particular by many peoples because of the wars that they funded and their their involvement in politics. They're they're unelected, but they, like bankers everywhere, Jewish and non-Jewish bankers, profited in times of peace and in times of war and were able to make and break governments by their ability to finance them or or refuse to finance them. Right. And and if I could just add on for a second, I mean, if the Rothschilds had just stayed in one country like the UK or France or whatever, and they backed that government and they backed those wars, everything would have been fine. But, you know, by the 1760s, they've got branches in London, Paris, Frank- Frankfurt, Vienna, Naples. And so some Rothschild somewhere is going to be backing somebody when there's a war and there's wars all over the place. So you could u- easily use that to criticize, you know, you're making money no matter who wins, but they're being just like the Jews of whatever country, they're being loyal to to whatever uh, nation that they're in, but they're not, they're not going to win either way. So I can't remember about the Medici, maybe you know this, but the Roth- Rothschilds 
because I guess they want they were very uh, selective in who was allowed to come into the family. For someone of their family to get married was a very big deal, and so there was a lot of intermarriage. Uh, first and second cousins would get married, and I can't remember if the Medici's were were like that as well. I think they were more open, but as we're going to see when we go through the Roth, some of the Rothschilds' history. Um, Bringing in new people helped change them um, over the decades. It gave them a slightly different outlook on life. They got a little more involved in some of the Jewish, the Zionist, uh, the program that was going on and some of their causes. Because on one hand, they're the elite, they're the 1%. But at the same time, they're Jews, which means anybody can look down on them. You could be the poorest person in the world, but you're not a Jew. You're better than them. And these are some of the issues that they're going to have to deal with in the late 19th and early 20th century. And this is just, and they're going to have to find their way. Every time something comes up, they're going to have to find their way and how to deal with it at the end of the, end of the, end of the day. They're still Jews and they can still be attacked for that. Now, the notion that the Rothschilds should use their wealth to restore the Jewish kingdom of Jerusalem dated back as far as the 1830s. People, and wow. mostly Christian evangelicals, the Christian Zionists that I talked about in early episodes, kept suggesting that the Rothschilds should just buy the entire <coughs> land from right. the Ottomans and establish a, a Jewish kingdom there. But... The Rothschilds didn't seem that interested. As a family, they were usually divided about Zionism. Right. You'd have some that were all for it and some were, that were totally against it. Mm -hmm. um, for example, some like Walter, the guy that the Balfour Declaration was addressed to, he was a huge Zionist. As I said, he was like the president right. of the British Zionist Federation at the time. His son, Victor was not a Zionist. Mm. And in fact, uh, during the, the, the Germans, uh, the Nazi Holocaust against the Jews, he was against granting asylum or helping the Jewish refugees right. out of Nazi Germany in any way. So, you know, they, they were both sides. It's, it, the, the Rothschilds weren't all pro-Zionism or pro-Jew, uh, Jew, really, <laughs> at right. all. They were, uh, you know, they their interests lay other in other places, mostly in money. Uh, what's what's the upside, is what they would often say. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, bono? <laughs> yeah. If I'm not the qui, then there ain't no bono. That's what they used to have that on a T-shirt. If I'm not the qui... There ain't no bono. Oh, my God. Yeah. But I think you mentioned this before, but, you know, certainly after 1877, the anti-Jewish uh, rhetoric increases a lot in the journalism and speeches, certainly in Russia. We've talked about that before. And so what's going to make all this difficult in some ways for the Rothschild, even though they are the elites, you know, again, at the, at the same time, they are Jews. And so they're not sure exactly how to put their feet because they if you, they are the epitome of what is wrong with letting Jews have freedom and equality because here they are, they've taken over, they've got all this money, and like you said, they're being accused of starting wars or making governments fall or benefiting no matter who dies. And so in some ways, their image is their own worst enemy. So now there's this question of should we spend a whole bunch of money and buy Palestine for the Jews. I mean, it's a very tricky subject. And like you said, they're all over the place. And then William Marr in 1881, who's he's the one that comes up with the anti-Semite uh, term that we all use now. And how he came up with that is, is a rather interesting story. I don't know if you want to go into that. But again, it's a very tricky thing for these people. But as the 19th century ends and the 20th century begins, the Rothschilds get pulled more and more into the Zionist questions, the issues and what should be done with them and what should be done with Palestine. Yeah, we I think we've, we've talked about um, some of the uh, anti-Semitic things that happened in France mm -hmm. uh, towards the end of the 19th century, um, the Dreyfus Affair, etc. Right. And uh, the Rothschild family archives show that during the 1870s, they had contributed nearly 500,000 francs per year to Jewish causes. Uh, and as we mentioned earlier, they also financed a lot of the earliest uh, Zionist settlements in Palestine, the... Uh, First Aliyah, that kind of thing. And starting with the big Russian pogroms in the early 1880s, Edmund 
Rothschild, who was mm-hmm. a French member of the family and a huge Zionist, spent millions of pounds to create some of the early settlements uh, with Russian Jews going to Palestine. By 1903, of the 28 Jewish settlements in Palestine, most of them were subsidised wholly or partially by Edmund Rothschild. Wow. Yeah. Altogether, according to Ferguson's book, Rothschild spent £5.6 million <laughs> on his settlements, which was a lot of money in those days. I mean, now, £5.6 million. Pounds, Nothing. You know, yeah. We, we dropped that at dinner. Tony Kynaston and I dropped that at dinner on Sunday night. I said, well, I got it. I got it. Let me take care of it. If you get the appetizers, you know, you're going you're gonna to spend a lot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. This podcast money burning a hole in my pocket. Um, today, that would be around £627 million pounds or $820 million American. Right. He spent on building Jewish settlements in Palestine. Let's just round it up. Billion dollars. He was like, yeah, billion dollars. No problem. Can yeah. you just take it, you know, find it down the back of the, uh, the couch. Yeah. Um, but... At the same time as they were doing that, they didn't look very favorably uh, quite often at the big Zionist movements that guys like Theodore Herzl right. uh, and, and Weizmann were trying to push. In, in 1895, Herzl tried to approach Edmund Rothschild about the, you know, his plans for Zionism ended up giving up and wrote that the issue should not be laid before the Rothschilds who are vulgar, contemptuous, egotistical people. What? <laughs> well, if I could for a second, when you were talking about the $5.6 million, there were there were hundreds of other groups that were pulling their money together and they would raise like $80,000 a year. So obviously he's doing a lot. But for, for all the different various groups of Zionists, the one, the how do you say it, the Hibat Zion, the love of Zion, they were the ones who were being the most practical. Let's go in there. Let's buy up small tracts of land. Let's get in there. Let's work the land. Let's establish ourselves. And that's one of the, the things that the Edward Rothschild could support. So when Herzl or someone like that comes in, throwing all these bombs, making these loud proclamations, pretty much drawing attention to himself and what the Zionists are trying to do, Rothschild is like, no, 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 that's exact opposite of what we should be doing because if you do get it, attention the arabs in the local places are going to start shutting it down they're not going to let you buy the land the european governments back wherever you're from are going to start maybe uh having a negative view because you're going to seem like a troublemaker so that's the exact opposite of what some of the rothschilds were trying to do because it was working they were buying land and here comes this firebrand if you will just almost ruining everything and yeah so rothschild is going to send him away without a dime Mm. Uh, Herzl said that uh, instead the Zionists must wage a battle against the powerful Jews right. by mobilizing the Jewish masses. <laughs> Jew on Jew warfare, right? Nothing sexier than Jew on Jew warfare. Aren't enough of them a being year, killed? Sorry, go ahead. A, I don't think he meant a real battle here. Um, uh, you know, just a, 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 what a battle of the wills. Right. Um, a year later... After he tried again with Edmund Rothschild, he again started denouncing them as a national misfortune for the Jews. Oh, God. Around 1901, he tried to get a meeting with Natty Rothschild over in London. Couldn't even get a sit-down with him to discuss it. Natty said to others that he would view with horror the establishment of a Jewish colony, pure and simple. Right. One thing, he, uh, he wrote, of one thing I am convinced that the dream of Palestine is a myth and a will of the wisp. Yeah. So, I mean, why do you think they weren't interested in Herzl's ideas, Ray? Well, there's there's two uh, reasons that I know of. One, uh, again, he was very loud. He was very bombastic, and he's getting a lot of attention. And he's like saying, we're going to go in there, and as far as I can tell, we're going to create a state. We're going to take the land. I mean, that's just asking for trouble. Two, and, th- and this is kind of on a, on a personal level, but Herzl, I think it was Herzl, who was known for uh, in the middle of very uh, – 
passionate speeches of dropping threats at the same time. He's like, oh, we, we're going to go to war with the Rothschild or we're going to wipe you out or we're going to, you know. So he would like personally insult you one moment and then explain to you why you should be giving him millions of dollars the next moment. But I think at the end of the day, it was just drawing too much attention and it might antagonize too many people. And the Jews have already got enough problems as it is certainly in this point in history. That's my take on it. Yeah, I mean, this is just after the the recent Russian pogroms. Um, and, you know, he, Herzl was even offering to make the Rothschilds the princes oh, that's right. of this land. <laughs> prince Rothschild. I'm already a prince, uh, bitch. Sorry. But according to, according to Ferguson, the, the issue here was Herzl's vision was for a socialist land. Remember, Herzl yes. was a communist. Yes. Herzl introduced... Uh, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, right. and then Engels banged his wife. Um, he was a he was a socialist. He wanted a socialist Israel with a nationalized banking system. Now the Rothschilds were pure capitalists. Yeah, come they, on. They didn't they didn't want any of that nonsense. Qui me bono? Uh, yeah, yeah, me bono. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, qui, just me bono. Yeah, yeah, yeah just me, Bono. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's not going to and, work. And as you indicated, there was a fear that if a state for Jews was created, it might threaten the status of Jews in other countries, right. like in, in England or France or Austria and Russia. It, it, they'd spent centuries trying to get their families into the upper echelons of these states, and, and they worked. didn't want their status yeah. to be threatened. People right. could start going, well, look, you got your own land now, so fuck off. Exactly. Get out of our land. We're go to your you land. Yeah. You financed it. You're a prince of it. Fuck off. Go <laughs> go to Palestine yeah. and leave us alone. Exactly. And and also they didn't really believe Theodore Herzl's pessimistic vision that one day Jews would be disenfranchised en masse across Europe. Uh, you know, the Rothschild, like the Jews were still facing pogroms and that sort of thing. But the Rothschilds were somewhat insulated from right. that. They, right. You couldn't easily take down the Rothschilds because you wanted their money. I mean, you could maybe take their money as well. Short term, you might right. be able to get your hands on some of the treasure. But uh, long term, the, the royal families, the elite needed the Rothschilds. Yeah. They were a uh, you know, powerful banking family. If you took them down, oh, yeah. uh, you, you might struggle to get financed. And, but anyway, Herzl, of course, was right that the particularly the German Jews, as well as you know the Polish and the Czech Jews, were going to get uh, going to get fucked over in a big way within decades. But no one could really see that at the time. No one really believed that. The Rothschilds didn't really believe that. But the reason they eventually got on board with Herzl was when Herzl changed his strategy and said, "Okay." Maybe it's not going to be a, a kingdom, a socialist kingdom. Maybe what if we just made it like part of the British Empire? Now yeah. he was like, aha, ah. now you're now talking, son. <laughs> my language. All right, come in. Yeah. Sit down, my son. <laughs> Have some schmuckies <laughs> and some bushka. Do you know I what know, I like? I'm just making those words <laughs> up. I don't know what those things are. He said to Herzl, do you know what I like? I like my money protected by British guns. That's, or French, either one's fine, but now you're actually yeah. whistling my tune. We can talk now. Yeah. So that's what it was all about. Now, uh, at this stage, Natty introduced Herzl to Joseph Chamberlain, and that's when you yeah. know, the discussions at a high level of the British government started to take place. Um, now, since the late 19th century, the Rothschilds have taken a fairly low-key public profile. You mm. don't hear much about them in the press these days. They donated many of their palaces, lots of art to charity. And these days, they kind of keep a low profile. But they're everywhere, if you drill right. down into it. Uh, they, they run businesses still in banking. They also have massive empires in real estate, farming, energy, mining, winemaking, some non-profits. Uh, Rothschilds are still very, very influential. But, yeah. um, you know, there's also a trillion of them and the wealth has been spread amongst them. They're like the Walmart kids, you know, the money's <laughs> yeah, but there's know, still money separated there. amongst lots of them. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Um, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I'm done with that. Quick bio on the Rothschilds. Did you have anything more you wanted to throw in? Well, I just want to. I just wanted to give the, if I could, just give the Rothschild thing just a little perspective because this is what I learned when I read that book that you recommended. I thought this was so interesting. So you've already mentioned the trouble the the Jews were having in in France, the Dreyfus affair, that kind of thing. Uh, the trouble and they were having in Britain, like they were blamed for the Boer War, the uh, cold shoulder they were getting in America, that kind of stuff. And so the Rothschilds had figured out a long time ago. Well. We have to fight back, obviously, but we have to fight back in our own way. We have to be smart about this. We can't just, you know, just try to take these um, various institutions, these various governments head on. So one of the things you do is you try to get people to like you. You know, they were donating, like you said, tons of money to charities. They were trying to win social acceptance, building hospitals, housing projects, dentists and doctors for the blind and the deaf. I mean, who, who would be against that kind of thing. You know, they start marrying a little bit more outside their family. And one of the things they were trying to do was when Jews would come over from Eastern Europe, excuse, Eastern Europe, they would try to quickly get them to, to whatever degree to assimilate so they didn't stand out so much. They weren't so different. They weren't, you know, almost, if you could say they weren't embarrassing the Rothschilds. And I just, I just found all that really interesting. They're trying to help the Russians. And, and like you said, out of all of these different questions, out of all the different ways to help the Jews, yet yeah, maybe it would be a good idea for them to go back to their biblical place of origin, you know, go back to Palestine, which is what starts up the entire thing that you were just saying. But I just I just find it very fascinating, this family that's probably the richest family on the world, and they've been given all these um, titles in Austria and France and, and England. I mean, they are everything you would ever want to be. They have it all. And yet at the same time, because they're Jews, they have to be careful. So that's the world that they live in. That must have been just very tricky for them. And so now they're getting involved in this potentially explosive Holocaust-creating, war-creating situation of what to do with the Jews, what to do with Palestines. And I just found that whole thing fascinating. But they've got to because it's getting to the point where if they don't get involved and try to help out, someone else is going to make decisions. And so they're going to use their power, their influence, their money. And even, but even with all that, they're still hesitant as hell and sometimes don't even want to do it, but they've got to get involved in this sticky situation. Mm, I just found that cool. (laughs) Uh, Now, uh, Natty, Natty Rothschild, the first Baron Rothschild, died in 1915. So by 1917, when the Balfour Declaration was issued, his son, Walter, Lionel Walter Rothschild, the second Baron Rothschild, was the head of the family in the UK. And... His interest in taking part in this whole affair was mostly about securing securing mm-hmm. the region of Palestine for Britain and keeping France out. Right. He, mm. he, he wrote uh, to Weizmann saying that he was against the idea that power in Palestine might be shared between England and France. England must have sole control. Right. He wrote in his letter. Now, remember when we were talking about the Sykes-Picot discussions, they were kind of saying, well, you'll get this bit and we'll get this bit and maybe this whole Palestine bit in the middle we'll share. Yeah, joint. Uh, Walter Rothschild was like, no fucking way. It's all (laughs) got to be Britain. Britain, Britain, Britain. Now... I just have to ask: Was he was he saying that because he was pro-British, or was he saying that mm. because he wanted Palestine potentially for a Jewish home under the British umbrella, or both? I think he was. You know, he was pro-British. He okay. was, uh, you know, he was our way uh, or the highway. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. He wanted it controlled by Britain. Now uh, there was also some talk at the time, late in 1917 that maybe mm-hmm. Zionism wasn't even necessary anymore because the Russian Revolution had just happened. Oh. Remember that the October Revolution, the, when the Bolsheviks took over, that was October 1917. Mm-hmm. The Balfour Declaration was issued in December 1917. And a lot of people hoped that the, the Bolsheviks, who were anti-religion, would now provide a safe haven for the Jews in Russia. Right. 
But because you know yeah. the 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 anti-Semitism, the pogroms were mostly justified by religion. You killed them. You killed Jesus, so we right. can do whatever the fuck we want to you. Yeah. The the Bolsheviks were going to ban all religion, so the Jews. And again, remember that a lot of the Jews that were uh, Russian Jews that were going to Palestine were atheists anyway. So they a lot of people were saying, well, we don't need to do this anymore. We can stay here. It's all going to be great in Russia. Right. But see, I'm and, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, and and half as we I think we've talked about on this show, half of the uh like senior ranks of the uh Bolsheviks as well as the Mensheviks were Jews. They yeah. were Russian Jews that that half of them anyway, half of the revolutionaries were Russian Jews. Yeah. So uh, it, it looked like it was going to be a safe place for Jews, particularly you know Russian Jews in Russia, post-revolutionary Russia. Right. I don't, I don't know. For me, that's just almost as a flimsy idea as the Balfour uh, Declaration that says we're going to create a home, but all non-Jews' rights, religions, customs, whatever, will be respected. And you and I have already talked about all the trouble that's been caused through the three... Aliots, the three Aliyahs, um, that just a certain number of Jews came by, came there. So if you add a lot more Jews from Russia who still may want to get out of there, it's still going to cause trouble. It's like, this can never, ever, ever, ever work. Why can't these people see that? But they keep pushing it anyway. But why not? I mean, why couldn't they just stay in Russia? Well, from what I remember when... Um, the, the Jews were being trashed in France in 1880. One of the examples was uh, there was a lot of Jews there. Some of them were in positions of power and their government fell. It was the Jews' fault. I mean, they were just being blamed for literally everything that happened under the sun. So they could stay there, but it's only a matter of time before someone else, something bad happens, the economy turns, whatever it does, a tidal wave, a typhoon, a hurricane, it doesn't matter. They're going to be blamed and there's going to be other killing, mass killings of them. So, again, it's just, it's a good, I don't well, it's not even a good idea on paper. It's, it's just something that people are trying to think through, with, but at the same time ignoring all the history that's just happened. Yeah, okay. But, you know, again, a lot of uh, the anti-Semitism, I mean, the, the, I mean, leaving aside the Roman Empire's mm-hmm. reason for oppressing the Jews, which was, you know, their... The, uh, attempts to rebel, revolt yeah, against do the that. Romans. Uh, um, you know, post the rise of Christianity, the basis of anti-Semitism was basically, well, you you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, and Jews uh, crucified Jesus, so it was basically religiously. Right, I see your point. Okay, it was and if you take based right, if you take religion out of Russia, it shouldn't be a problem, and that's what the revolution was going to do. Or the new government. Okay, I see your point now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the Bolsheviks, well, the the socialists in general, the Marxists were uh, all get rid of religion. They believed that religion was one of the tools of the oppression of the masses and Mm -hmm. they should get rid of religion. And that would mean there would be no basis for anti-Semitism. Oh, good. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, enough people uh, didn't uh, think that was that was that was too risky. Maybe, maybe they just wanted to get out of there because the pogroms had put them off the whole place. But yeah. also, the, I think the key point is that the one of the main reasons for setting up this British protectorate in Palestine was that the British Zionists, mm-hmm. Jewish and Christian wanted a British-friendly power next door to the Suez Canal. Right, right. Talked about the importance of that in an earlier episode. So, you know, it it doesn't matter what's happening in Russia. Uh, We need this. We need a a friendly power. Now, uh, maybe they could have organised that with the Arabs, as we'll see uh, as we go ahead. The Arabs wanted to control and were sort of happy to be part of a British protectorate. But, you know, from the perspectives of the British, the Arabs were basically savages. Right. Uh, Uncouth, uneducated, dirty, untrustworthy, lazy, the whole, you know, what you call me. Now, they didn't like the... (laughs) My my little Arab. Uh, They didn't... 
They didn't like the Jews either. Right. But same, at least the words. Jews yeah. at least the Jews were white people. Right. <laughs> Educated white people. But we can't trust them. Yeah, a little bit of little bit of Middle Eastern <laughs> blood, but they were Europeans, as we've talked right. about. They, you right. know, they were mostly European. They'd been in Europe for you know, a fucking thousand years, yeah. uh, intermingled, uh, a lot of Jew, a lot of white, a lot of white blood in there. So yeah, you know, the the British didn't like anyone who weren't <laughs> British, basically. But uh, if I had to choose, yeah, white is right. <laughs> white is the right. The Jews were <laughs> the Jews were kind of white, and that was better than the Arabs, right. basically, from the viewpoint of the British. Semi cracker. Uh, I got you. So that's that's from all of my reading on this. The the the. You know, there was the Christian Zionist thing about, oh, well, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to come back and we better we better get the savages out of the Holy Land by the time Jesus gets back. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't like the Jews either, but, you know, at least that's better than One a bunch of a Muslims. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so the Muslims worship his dad as well. And actually, the Muslims think of Jesus as a prophet, whereas the Jews just it's, think of him as, you know, some crazy motherfucker. So, in fact, if Jesus did come back... yeah. Yeah, he would Muslims. probably look more favorably <laughs> on the Muslims because he's like, well, at least they yeah. talk about me. I'm the guy they talk about the most in their holy book. Right. I'm going to still smite them, but I'm going to do it gently as opposed to what I'm going to do to, to the Jews. Yeah. Like like Caesar with the pirates, I'll right. cut their throats before I crucify them. I'm a good guy. Uh, I'm a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good guy, Jesus. <laughs> uh, so this whole Christian Zionist thing didn't even make any sense. But... Uh, the real reason I I am convinced the real reason here was uh, political. They wanted self-serving power that the British could trust and control right. that owed them one. Yes, to the east of the Suez Canal, so they could protect that. You know, anybody trying to come in and uh, take it from them. Yeah. Uh, so yes. They, and, and they were also worried, part of the timing, we talked about this in a previous episode, part of the timing of the Balfour Declaration at the end of 1917 was the French had issued their own kind oh, that's of right. French. Uh, reach around to the <coughs> Jews, uh, yeah. and they were worried that the Germans might come out with their own Zionist oh, declaration we as well. we got to get on this. we got to yeah. do some big. So the British needed to move quickly. Right. and they. So after they issued this, there was a huge celebration at Covent Garden Opera House, Mm-hmm. where Walter gave a big speech where he told the audience the greatest event that has occurred in Jewish history for the last 1,800 years has just happened with the Balfour wow. Declaration. But still, nobody cared about the Arabs. Balfour <coughs> himself gave yeah. a speech to a Jewish luncheon in February 1918 where he said, my personal hope is that the Jews will make good in Palestine and eventually found a Jewish state. Oh, putting it out there. What about the Arabs? Mm, Fuck them. Arabs. Did we CC them? I can't remember. A year or so later, Balfour gave another speech where he said, Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-old traditions, in present needs, in future hopes, and of far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit that ancient land. <laughs> Fuck the Arabs. All 700,000 of them. Yeah. yeah, what have they ever done for me? So, if, if I may, my last, my last contribution to this episode is, so the Balfour Declaration, like the Munich Agreement, did not consult the very people most affected. And how did that turn out? Oh, just great, great. <laughs> great for the Jews. PG. PG. Mm. Yeah. The Palestinian Arabs were seen by the British as insignificant natives, usurpers, Right. Whereas the incoming Jews were white people, Europeans, <laughs> uh, and the rightful owners of Palestine. Oh, my God. Why? Because their fake religious book uh, written thousands of years ago sure. uh, said that their fake God promised the land to them. <clears throat> Now, the British didn't consult the Arab leaders before issuing the Balfour Declaration, and apparently didn't really anticipate any negative reaction from them. 
Oh. You know, they seem to think, and again, we've got to keep in mind, this is taking place during World War One, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Right. And the British were in discussions with the Arab leaders, as we've seen before. They were promising them all sorts of things. Um, and here, here, I've actually got a recording of, uh, of some of the negotiations. Okay. So you'll hold down the Turkish Desert Army. Yes. With a thousand Arabs. A thousand Arabs means a thousand knives. Delivered anywhere, day or night. It means a thousand camels. That means a thousand packs of high explosive and a thousand crack rifles. We can cross Arabia while Johnny Turk is still turning round. I'll smash his railways. And while he's mending them, I'll smash them somewhere else. In 13 weeks, I can have Arabia in chaos. You are going back then. Yes, of course I'm going back. Hmm. Well, if we can see it, so can the Turk. If he finds he's using four divisions to fend off a handful of bandits, he'll withdraw. He daren't withdraw. Arabia's part of his empire. If he gets out now, he knows he'll never get back again. I wonder who will. No one will. Arabia's for the Arabs now. That's what I've told them anyway. That's what they think. That's why they're fighting. Oh, surely. They've only one suspicion. We'll let them drive the Turks out and then move in ourselves. I've told them that that's false, that we've no ambitions in Arabia. Have we? I'm not a politician, thank God. Have we any ambition in Arabia, Dryden? Difficult question, sir. I want to know, sir, if I can tell them in your name that we've no ambitions in Arabia. Certainly. Chirik, <laughs> when he says uh, Arab is for uh, Arabia is for the Arabs now, General Al- Allenby and Dryden, just uh, played by Claude Rains masterfully, just sort of. Give each other this slow little look <laughs> across oh, the room. One of those. And, uh, that's, yeah. why, uh, that's why uh, Tiberius there is getting quite uh, suspicious <laughs> of their intentions. And uh, it, was, uh, it was after this in the betrayal that he built his sex palace. Right. He was like, well, fuck this, Dejected. I'm out of here. Yeah. Great movie. I haven't seen that in years. Lawrence no. of Arabia. I, I was telling one of my kids recently, like you got to sit down and watch Lawrence of Arabia, man. Like it's four hours long, but it's yeah. Well, fucking Peter O'Toole, man. Oh, watch so him all good day. In that. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, yes, the betrayal of the Arabs by the British. Um, they didn't. They didn't uh, consult them about the Balfour Declaration, but they've been promising them all sorts of things. In fact, it was two months after the issue of the Balfour Declaration before someone from the British Arab Bureau in Cairo went to see Hussein ibn Ali, the <laughs> right. Sharif of Mecca, where they promised them that Jewish settlement in Palestine would only be allowed insofar as would be consistent with the political and economic freedom of the Arab population. Hussein... Yeah, yeah. So... Hmm? I was going to say that was Lieutenant Colonel David Hogarth, and he said that with a straight face, looking the mm. Sharif right in the eye. With his fingers crossed behind his back. <laughs> exactly. Hussein replied that the Arabs would never concede sovereignty over Palestine to Jew or Britain. However, officially, because he knows how to play the game, he said, we would welcome the Jews who are energetic and hardworking. They can help us to develop the region, but they will never own it. So it's on like Donkey Kong. Mm. It was only about a year later in November 1918 that about 100 Arab dignitaries addressed a petition to the British denouncing the Balfour Declaration. (laughs) Right. They'd stated that they had always sympathised profoundly with the persecuted Jews and their misfortunes in other countries, but 
there is a wide difference between this sympathy and the acceptance of such a nation ruling over us and disposing of our affairs. <clears throat> Trouble is coming. Well, I think we'll leave leave this episode there, Ray. We'll be back next time with more on how the sneaky, sneaky British <laughs> created Israel. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. The obvious answer is it's payback time. Of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Basically, and I'm sure a lot of listeners know this so they can figure it out really quickly, but damn, I am in the wrong country. You'd see something really ugly. I can't believe I'm saying this, but if you can move off my penis. That's how I'm gonna fight. My penis. Fuck, we could rule the world. I mean, this would be great. You know what, if you and I could get along, Let's go with penises.